did this poll and he's already starting to kick up dust in replies to people on Twitter about how, oh, maybe it was bots that, you know, rigged this poll against me. And this is the sort of Kerry Lake, Donald Trump school of voting, which is heads I win, tails you lose. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, how goes it in New York City? Not so bad. I just did an event at the Comedy Cellar last night, did a panel with um, Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt and Scott Barry Kaufman for his podcast, which was super cool. I'm not a, really a comedy person, but that was a cool stage to grace. Um, so no Did you complaints. tell some jokes? No, I didn't. But the theme of the night was why the last 10 years have been so uniquely terrible. And so... Um, not the not the most pleasant conversation. Terrible for comedy. No, just terrible in general. And then we had a little comedy like <laughs> diversion. So um, I think everyone who bought tickets knew what they were getting themselves into, and it wasn't really a suited thing for the venue aside from the free speech common thread. I would say, but it was really fun. A um, word on the street is you sold out the comedy cellar. We did. Right? It was pretty cool. I really can't take any responsibility for that, given the people that I was on the panel with. But pretty cool. How's Costa Rica? Costa Rica is good. Waves are good. Weather's good. You know, things are chill. Shout out to the folks at Outpost for giving me their podcast studio for the next six weeks. I'm here in a still echoey, but soundproof room. Thank goodness. So nice. I'll, I'll be operating out of here for the foreseeable future. Well, that sounds enviable. I'm in New York and it's very, very cold. Yeah. Well, I escaped, it seems like, at the right time. I am a little under the weather, as you could probably hear, Ricky, but it's not stopping me. I'm still going out and surfing, which is probably making it worse. But mm -hmm. my voice will have a nice scratchy sound for, for this episode, at least. The salt water has healing qualities. Yeah. So you can write it off that way. Well, we will be taking off and I'll be giving my voice a rest for the next few weeks. Uh, on Thursday, we're going to be doing a legacy admissions episode. We've been working on this for a while. This is basically a part two from our affirmative action episode that we did a few weeks back. And we're basically going to just dive in and talk about how screwed up college admissions is. And then we're going to do a best of episode next Thursday that looks back at some of the best segments that we've ever done. And then we'll be back on a regular schedule after New Year's starting January 3rd. But we have a busy episode Today, we're going to talk about how Asian American students are going to great lengths to hide their ethnicity from college admissions officers. Then we're going to share our best ofs from the past year, just things that we've consumed, things that we've liked from around the spectrum. But of course, Ricky, before that, we thought we were done with Musk. And I, and I am so declaring that we're going to be done with Musk for a while here. But he really made a spectacle of Twitter and the platform and himself last week. When he just took a series of steps, it all started on the 14th when he tweeted about a crazy stalker following a car carrying his son. Uh, and he instituted a new anti-doxing policy on the platform in response to an account called Elon Jet, which was tracking his private jet. Uh, that was a change of tune from a previous policy that he had announced. He had announced on uh, November 6th that his commitment, this is his quote, quote, my commitment to free speech extends even to not banning the account following my plane, even though that is a direct personal safety risk, end quote. It's also a bit of a change of tone from previous statements Musk has made that he basically is only going to go so far as the law requires him to police speech. Um, so he had a back and forth with his college student previously where he tried to offer the student money to take down his account. But he didn't just stop at banning this account. He then banned a bunch of journalists who 
were reporting on this account. Yeah, who had linked to the Elon Jet account, but then also um, removed their Twitter accounts after that link was already removed. So it was like basically a link to nowhere. And this is based on public data. So. Yeah, defend your boy, Ricky. What? What, defend this. This is what's kind of depressing to me is this like gleeful vibe on the left oh. right now where it's like, we told you so that there's no such thing as real free speech. But I think that like, I don't have a defense against this because he's gone back on his prior words. I do think having an anti-doxing policy is probably fair and not a terrible idea. You can be a free speech absolutist in a governmental sense, but not a private entity sense. And, you know, I think that's that's a fair guardrail to have in place. However, I don't like that the impetus for having it in place is his personal experience, even though I can be sympathetic to the fact that having your child in a car and having someone stalking them is probably a really harrowing experience. But, you know, I said, like, when we first were talking about the Elon situation that he needed to just have, like, as soon as he started flirting with, okay, like, we can't let literally anything fly on this platform. I said, it needs to be like, here are the exact categories here when they're going to be implemented. And it just needed to be clear and concise. And if there was ever going to be an amendment, it would have to be like very deliberate for me to be happy with how this all rolls out. But it's very clear to me that when censorship is expedient and he has a personal life experience, while I can sympathize with like how troubling that must have been, you know, I I mean, theoretically, there are other people being doxxed on Twitter. And so I think that like it shouldn't just be about one person who has the levers of control. And there have been principled people who have been in support and then revoked their support on this specific instance, like Barry Weiss, Greg Lukianoff. There are people who are not just vehemently pro-Elon, but as you know, I am not wearing my Elon shirt today (laughs) as I was in our last episode. So it's a a poignant choice. Well, I think as we previewed on this podcast many times, this is just erratic, disorganized. It seems like he's in over his head in running this company. It doesn't seem to be this utopia that he promised. And yes, I understand there are a lot of people out there pointing at the glee from the left, but that's that seems to be a misplaced emphasis, right? Like I saw Mark Andreessen tweet that Taylor Lorenz had previously come out against doxing. I'm like, first of all, this is not just about doxing, right? Like as you pointed out, the New York Times itself or these these journalists were linking to the banned account at that point. So it wasn't they were linking to to Elon's real-time location no, or anything like that. No, definitely. That's a step too far. Yeah. And to illustrate, I think, the sort of tangle that Musk has gotten himself into, Musk himself went on Twitter spaces to talk to Drew Harwell from the Washington Post. You're suggesting that we're sharing your address, which is not true. And you're suggesting that we're, we're posting... True. I never posted your address. You posted a link to the address. In the re- course of reporting about Elon Jet, we posted links to Elon Jet, which are now not online um, and now banned on on Twitter. And and Twitter also, of course, marks even the Instagram and Mastodon accounts of Elon Jet as as harmful. Using you know, we have to admit, acknowledge using the same exact link blocking technique that you have criticized as part of the Hunter Biden New York Post story in 2020. So what is different? Yeah. here and there. It's no more acceptable for me. It's, it's no more acceptable for you than it is for me. Same thing. So anyway. Uh, so it's unacceptable what you're doing? No. What you, you, you dox, you get suspended, end of story, that's it. It's also notable that 
what was going on here is this is a banned journalists that a lot of them were getting on Twitter spaces because there was like a glitch in the system where they were banned from regular Twitter, but not spaces. After some of these testy exchanges that Musk had with these reporters, Twitter spaces went down and they said it was some kind of routine maintenance, which seems highly suspicious. And then when it returned, a lot of the banned journalists were off the platform. So it seems like there's something less than full honesty going on here. Yeah. I mean, it's not unreasonable to want banned users to not be able to access certain aspects of it. But I mean, I think the timing of a lot of what's going on here is very convenient. I'd be totally fine with an anti-doxing policy that does not include like such a convoluted thing of, oh, you wrote an article that hyperlinks to a thing that isn't even up. Like it's, it's definitely not a great look all around. I think Barry Weiss put it nicely. He's, she said, um, the old regime at Twitter was governed by its own whims and biases, and it sure looks like the new regime has the same problem. And so to her credit, even though she was friendly with Elon enough to have the Twitter files come out through her Twitter and um, promoted her new publication through that lens, she is also critiquing it when it's necessary. And I, I, I agree with her that you can be very much in love with the idea of what Twitter could have been with Elon, but also have to call out that this is this is not great. And so I think to Elon's credit, he, he's probably realizing that this is not the best uh, look for him. And so he had a Twitter poll that in just 12 hours got 17.5 million votes asking whether he should leave from his position of leaving leading Twitter at the moment. And 57% said, yes, he should. So... We'll see what that looks like. But I think he's realizing that having your own personal safety or your family safety tied up with having the levers of control of censoring such a an enormous platform is uh, a very dangerous thing. Well, I do think it's worth mentioning that at no point was anybody posting his address or even his no, real-time yeah, location. I think it was posting like which cities he was flying in and out of and potentially which airports, which is different than his actual address. But once again, that's not... That's not where this ended, right? This went far beyond that. It's also worth mentioning that he did this this poll and he's already starting to kick up dust in replies to people on Twitter about how, oh, maybe it was bots that, you know, rigged this poll against me. And essentially it's this is the sort of Carrie Lake, Donald Trump school of voting, which is heads I win, tails you lose. Yeah. You know, it, it's not that he he didn't contest the results when he polled his audience about whether Trump should be removed from the platform or not. He accepted those willingly and quickly. By the way, the amount of broken promises that he's made, it's staggering even keeping track of it. It's worth mentioning that he had promised not too long ago that any major a policy changes he made on content moderation would go through some kind of content moderation council. Clearly, he's making these decisions on the fly. He also instituted a policy that said that uh, you you couldn't link to other social media platforms, which conspicuously did not include TikTok, which is the Chinese-owned company, which we've talked about. Why is that notable? Well, the National Review and our friend Batia Angar Sargon, they both pointed out that, you know, National Review, not a leftist publication, pointed out, well, hey, maybe this has something to do with the fact that Tesla's supply chain is so wrapped up in China. Like this guy who claims to care about free speech seems to have a total blind spot for the maybe the most repressive regime in the entire world because it's in his interest. So I, I don't see the utopia here. Yeah, I think one person having the levers of control is problematic, even if their heart is in the right place, because everyone has their own biases. And being a true free speech absolutist is virtually impossible in the lens of running a private company. But 
even more difficult when when you and your family are caught up in it. And I think we're just living through proof of that. But I think before we close out this Twitter segment, we should also acknowledge that there was another pretty significant, in my opinion, as a New York Post columnist, uh, dump of the Twitter files that was very long. It was from Michael Schellenberger. It's number seven. But it alleges that there was an influence campaign from the FBI um, to suppress the Hunter Biden laptop story before it even came out and also details a lot of pretty intricate links between uh, intelligence agencies and Twitter. I think Musk is getting in his own way here because I think like he and a lot of his allies want to make the story about these Twitter files, except it's it's mostly about Musk's behavior this week. And I think lost in the discussion is this n- latest trove of documents. I suspect to not fully understanding the Twitter thread that Schellenberger put out. I read it multiple times this morning and there's very little external analysis of what he's saying. Can you give me your sense of just like, like, I'm just confused. Walk me through this. So I'll tell you a few things that are specifically concerning to me. It's like a 50 something long um, thread. So there's a ton of tweets and it's hard to kind of parse through. But a few things that caught my eye. There was a kind of like tabletop roundtable discussion that was held about the hack and dump um, and how do you deal with the Hunter Biden laptop uh, situation, suggesting that it was hacked and dumped rather than just he left it at this at this random repair shop. And we do know the origins of it. It's not ambiguous. The FBI knew it. The um, the guy who the laptop fell into the hands of gave it to the FBI. The FBI had it for 10 months. So it's not ambiguous how we got our hands on this information. But that at that conversation, there were people from the New York Times, NPR, NBC, Twitter, and Facebook. And the idea was like, how are, how are we going to shape how the media covers it is what Schellenberger alleges. So That's concerning in the private sector. But then you also have the back channel communications between Yoel Roth, who is a frequent character in this story, and an FBI agent named Elvis Chan, who reached out to him just hours before the New York Post came out with their article, sent him 10 documents in a special one-way communication channel. We don't know what the contents were of it, but the uh, timing is pretty suspicious. It's right before the Post was set to drop this cover story. Part of the reason, though, why... It's so hard to talk about this stuff is take the worst version of this story, right? Which is that the FBI itself gave intelligence to Twitter saying that they thought that the laptop was a hack, right? Let's say that that's actually what happened. There obviously has to be more reporting to verify whether that absolutely happened or not, but let's pretend that that happened. There could be a lot of explanations for that. One could be they actually did have intelligence at the time that suggested that. And they passed it along and it turned out to they be wrong. They had the laptop for you 10 know. months. Yeah, but I, they I don't had the know how long for it 10 takes. Months. They knew the origins of it. So is the allegation that Trump's own FBI lied about the origins of the laptop? I'm not making I'm any, trying to get Yeah, I'm trying to I'm get still motives I'm not making any allegation. Here. I mean, to me, it doesn't matter who is the person in power or even this story in specific. Like, I'm not super attached to the Hunter Biden story in specific. I'm attached to the potential that a government agency, no matter who gets the the reins of it, or no matter who is the Twitter um, executive that they're talking to, whether it's Elon or whether it's somebody that's more left-leaning, I don't care. Because I think the precedent set, if there was some sort of back-channel communication through which a governmental agency was censoring speech that's protected by the First Amendment through secret private channels with a private entity, 
is a concerning precedent. There'll probably be Twitter files part 17 by the time we get back from our break. So I'm sure we'll have plenty of fodder. But I promise our audience, unless something truly insane happens, we're going to take a big break from talking about Twitter. Well, one article that we wanted to react to is a New York Times piece, which came out that detailed a years-long phenomenon of Asian students being urged by college counselors to obscure their ethnic background, to avoid stereotypes, to not dabble in certain things that admissions officers might see as stereotypically Asian. And this comes on the heels of a recent hearing of arguments by the Supreme Court in a case brought by Students for Fair Admissions against Harvard University for having admissions policies that they allege are um, pretty clearly discriminatory against Asian students. and basically exposes this industry that is supposed to potentially um, like teach students how to be in the briefs language less Asian, which is very, very concerning. And I think some of the details that the New York Times highlights are really upsetting just from the outside in. Um, they talk about talk to students who say that they put the prefer not to say box on their racial um, answers on their application because they think that it'll potentially harm them. One student avoided mentioning her passion for chess because she was worried that a a college admissions officer might see her as too Asian. And then college admissions consultants are going as far as to just blatantly admit that they're telling kids to do this. One student was told, don't take the Chinese AP exam, take the French one instead. Um, They're urging students not to go to Chinese language school, to play piano or to play certain classical instruments that are um, linked to certain ethnicities. They're told that writing about their family's immigrant story is too basic and that they shouldn't check the race box necessarily unless they're Latino or Black. And so I think this is really just puts a lot of like personal color on the fact that people are being told to actively suppress their identities if they don't fit into the right box, which to me is just so grotesque. We talked about in this affirmative action episode that we'll link to in the show notes. We talked to a whole bunch of people, including the Students for Fair Admissions plaintiffs. We talked to people who are pro-affirmative action, who supported Harvard's admissions policies. And by and large, what became clear was that even people who you know were as strident in supporting Harvard and strident in supporting affirmative action could not explain why Harvard's policies are the way that they are. And I think it's most succinctly summed up in a question that I asked of Harvard Law School professor, Ginny Sue Gerson, who's been a a critic of a lot of these policies at her own university. I asked her about what was going on here in the admissions process at Harvard, and here's what she had to say. It was very clear and undisputed at trial that Asians had better scores than white applicants on the SATs on the grades and the extracurricular activities. But the thing that they scored the worst on, and they scored the worst of any racial group, what's called the personality rating or the personal rating. And that personal rating was one that was based on admissions officers' evaluation of an applicant's personal qualities like courage, integrity, helpfulness, likability, and my favorite, effervescence. So essentially what she's describing, and this this process has been playing out in the courts for a while, is that Harvard has these objective measures to gauge whether kids like meet their criteria and has to do with GPA mm-hmm. and SATs and all that. And Asians perform at the top of all demographics on those metrics. And then they have these more subjective metrics 
what they call personality traits and some people call personal scores. And they have to do with these concepts like leadership, character, effervescence is one of them, right? Kindness. And, like Yeah. And it, it's like a total black box. You can't, you, there's no sense of like, where, where do they come up with these things? Like, how do you do better or worse on them? And Asians perform near the bottom on those, but near, at, near the top on the strict objective academic metrics. And it became clear at trial in other ways, like Harvard was actually going out of their way to exclude Asians. Like, so for instance, they were sending out applications or letters of solicitation to encourage applicants from what they called sparse country to apply to Harvard, which essentially is like more rural areas around the country. But the cutoff to get one of those letters for Asian Americans was much higher than other demographics. So they're basically racially profiling their letters, encouraging people to apply to their university. What this article makes clear is that everybody knows this, right? All Asians know this. I said at the end of that episode, I even back when I was applying to schools, I didn't check the box Asian American because I knew it wasn't going to help. It was going to hurt. And I think what this article shows is like, hey, this is pretty grotesque how this is playing out right now. And even the most liberal person should look at this and say it's wrong. I think the Supreme Court case that's being brought by Students for Fair Admissions is just so damning. And these stories and these like personal anecdotes of kids being told to like turn their backs on their identities or not to acknowledge their immigrant parents' struggles and their essays, which sounds like a really compelling and interesting essay to me if they've managed to achieve academically and their their parents came here and built wealth from nothing. Like that sounds like a really meaningful essay rather than like this is my community service experience or blah blah blah. Like I, I think seeing kids authenticity be stifled in this way is really, really upsetting. And I think, you know, also just looking at these admissions data more broadly that we got out of this um, Students for Fair Admissions trial, there are other really concerning patterns that I think come up, including the types of even though white students tend to perform better than Asian students in admissions at Harvard, the types of white students that got in were really staggering. 43% of their admissions were offered to athletes, um, children of staff, legacies, or people on the dean's interest list, which includes only people who um, donated to the school or their families donated to the school. And so that's versus only 16, that's 43% of the admitted white students, and then only 16% of the non-white students. And so there's a systemic favoring of students that are connected in the white demographic and 75% would have been rejected if they were not in the group. Um, And if you were to run an analysis of a white applicant that just had a 10% chance of getting in on their own by their own merit, they would have a five-fold increase um, in their admissions prospects if they were a legacy, a seven-fold increase if they were the child of donors, and a near certainty of admissions if they were a recruited athlete. So I think just across the board, all these different clearly discriminatory practices, whether it's based on race, whether it's based on who you know or what your family is, Harvard is coming out looking really, really awful. And I think the reform here goes beyond just checking a race box and allowing that to determine your future. It should just like there are so many connections and so many weird back ways that people are or are not getting in. And I think that looking at this data as a whole just becomes that much more concerning. Yeah. And it's and it's worth mentioning this is goes beyond Harvard, right? We talked about the Thomas Jefferson yeah, high absolutely. school process in Virginia, where there was a lot of anti-Asian 
sentiment animating some of the changes that were made to that high school and whether that was you know animating most or just some of the people it was clear that it was motivating some of them there were school board members in that case who were texting each other acknowledging the disparate impact this was going to have on asian americans and saying quote the asians hate us or something to that effect you had the san francisco school board which we've covered where the 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 now ousted school board uh vice chair there called asians the house n-word uh, and then refused to apologize for that. And so it's like, this is, you know, Stuyvesant in New York, where, you know, I've had a long debate with, you know, Chris Stewart, who we do a show with about this, like the arguments being made against some of these schools is that they have too many Asian kids in them. People are saying it out loud. And so um, this is a, a real issue that goes beyond the very elite schools. And it's actually something that our politicians are sensing. There were mailers that went out in North Carolina, Arizona, California, Michigan, Nevada, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, Texas, and Virginia during this past election cycle that said Asians need not apply or Asians and whites need not apply that the GOP was sending out basically targeting the Asian American vote. And actually, there's some exit polling data that shows that the uh, Asian American support for Democrats has dropped 15% in the past 10 years. So this kind of stuff is actually like, it seems like there's some evidence that there's some disaffection among Asian Americans who are a pretty reliable progressive voting bloc who are looking at at progressives saying, hmm, I'm not sure right now. And if I were sitting in these rooms as a political strategist for the Democratic Party, I'd be taking this very seriously. Absolutely. And I think taking the Supreme Court case very seriously and the implications and reverberations that it could potentially have, um, it's not just Harvard, it goes so far beyond Harvard, as you mentioned, is really important. And I would suggest to anybody who wants to hear more analysis from us on this topic to listen to our regressives episode about that case and what it could mean for the future. All right, Ricky, well, let's close out on some of our favorite stuff from the past year. I have a feeling you're going to have more to say on books than you are about TV and movies. So why don't we start with books here? What was your favorite book you read this year? Okay. I have one like general population recommendation. It's from the 90s, so it's not recent, but it's by Jonathan Rauch. It's called Kindly Inquisitors. And if you would like a left-leaning, true liberals perspective on why free speech and open expression is so important and so many really fabulous predictions of how things have gone awry in the years since. Strongly recommend that book. If you happen to be a young woman, I would suggest you read the book, Your Brain on Birth Control by Sarah Hill. Um, She's Mm. a doctor. She's not trying to tell you what to do with your life. I think it's just fascinating information and a very opaque topic that really messed me up. And there's a whole generation of young women who went on it for acne and have no idea that it's actually impacting their psychological experience of the world. Do you think I should read it or it would be useless for me? I don't think so. No, I think you can skip it. But I think anyone with a daughter as well should probably read that and just think about it. It's it's really interesting food for thought. Well, okay. I've got two recommendations too. One is an old read. It's called On the Move by Oliver Sacks. I just reread it and it just I, it, it sat differently with me now that I reread it years later. This is a, a memoir from the scientist, the doctor, Oliver Sacks, who if you ever see Awakenings with Robin Williams, which you haven't, I'm sure, uh, but it's this no. beautiful movie. But he's he's this doctor who's basically had this intrepid personality, very adventurous spirit, and he was like a pioneer about talking about things like psychedelics, both for The New Yorker for a long time, but just a really interesting guy with a very positive way about going out of life. He wrote this book before he died. It's really good. There's also this other book 
called Tomorrow, Tomorrow, and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin, which is a novel that's just incredible. I think this is on a lot of people's lists. It's about two friends who kind of are sort of in love who collaborate to create video games together. And they kind of, it's like a whole saga of how their relationship evolves. It's really awesome. Interesting. And let's move along to our favorite articles of the year. I have one 2021, one that I think is still worth reading um, called Everything is Broken in Tablet Magazine by Alana Newhouse. Um, I still find that to be probably one of the most impactful articles I've ever read. I thought it was beautiful. And then from this year, Jonathan Haidt in The Atlantic had a piece, which is kind of what we talked about last night at the Comedy Cellar, called Why the Past 10 Years of American Life Have Been So Uniquely Stupid. And just about everyone I know read that article, which is really yeah, impressive. The one. breadth that he got was fabulous and very much well-deserved. Well, uh, I'm going to recommend How an Ivy League School Turned Against a Student by Rachel Aviv. Uh, this is about UPenn. And they had this student who had this very complicated family backstory that led her leaving her family and going into foster care and all this. And I can't even do justice to how weird this story is. It's, it's quite a page turner. Shout out to Rachel Aviv. She's a really interesting writer. One time she actually, when I was at law school, she came and stayed with me because my roommate and her were friends. And she was covering Yale at the time was having naked parties. And they want, she wound up covering naked parties with my room. I didn't go to this thing. But in the front page of the New York Times, they had a photo of my roommate's back at the naked party because she had taken, I guess she had taken a, a photojournalist. And my mom reading the New York Times recognized my roommate's because he has a splotch, a weird like like birthmark type splotch uh-huh. on his back. And my mom was like, is that Jamie? <laughs> oh my God. Like, Did he know that was so coming she- out? Yeah, he, he he had fun with it. Did, but it did he turned consent out that they, to that photo? Like, did yeah, how did that it, it's work? A compli- it's a complicated story where even the people throwing the party knew she was a journalist and they set her up and, and made it a fake party. And it, there's a whole backstory to it that's kind of funny. But Interesting. it's funny that my, my mom was able to point out my buddy's back in the New York Times. It's <laughs> crazy. Wow. Uh, all right, TV shows. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to feel like we're going we're gonna to start running out of material here because you've, you've I have a TV show. I have one. Okay, what do you got? Okay, unpopular opinion here, but I actually liked the Sex and the City reboot and just like that. I thought that it, a lot of people were criticizing it for being too woke. I thought it was actually really interesting to watch these characters that lived in like this prior era of like the early 2000s when we weren't worried about political correctness. Now as adults, like, trying to grapple with like the modern contours of what's acceptable because a lot of what happened in the original show I don't think would be televised today and I think it was actually just like interesting from a sociological perspective and so I enjoyed it you know I gotta catch up I've only seen the first season of Sex and the City so I've got a ways to go it's my um, favorite it's the best I feel like these reboots are 50-50 I thought the I know. it's kind of bad really but kind of good at the yeah. same time like it's just interesting to see like these not woke characters become kind of woke but also they're not really very good at it and they're kind of tripping over themselves and they're trying to like like mold themselves to the society around them like there's this scene where charlotte has one of her friends over for dinner and panics that she's going to be the only black person at the dinner table so she's like going to neighbors who are black and asking them to come to dinner and it's like so cringy and awful and you're like oh but it's a little self-aware i kind of like it now i gotta check it out uh, I promised my grandma I would only watch Sex in the City with her. All right, my uh, my it's recommendation <laughs> is I love well yeah because we started watching it together. I think it was like some Easter or something. So it's super weird. Okay, I'll let that one up. sit. Yeah. Well, 
where was I? You just talked me out. Oh, Movies. Narcos. Oh, Narcos, TV. Mexico. Monica, our producer, hates when I talk about Narcos because she comes from Colombia and I'm sure they get everything wrong there. But I love the Mexico, the Mexico season in particular because I didn't understand like a lot of the history of like just how the drug trade has had evolved from marijuana to Mexico becoming like the main zone by which Colombian cocaine was making into the United States. And just the history of all the different figures involved there is really fascinating. So I recommend it there. They had a, a new season where they're starting to set up El Chapo there. Um, hmm. All right. Let's talk movies really quickly. Ricky, did you watch a single movie in the movie theaters this year? No, I don't think so. So I'm going to pass on that one. But I'll say if if you need a good Christmas movie, The Holiday is a good old classic. So that's all I got. I'll give you one. The Menu is this movie I watched a couple of weeks ago when I was in Miami. And it's all about like a high-end restaurant and things turn dark. I, I won't say too much, but it's a really thrilling watch. It's got Ray Fiennes and a bunch of other people like the woman from Queen's Gambit. It's got like a really good cast. It's a, it's a thrilling watch. Don't take your kids to that one. All right. Finally, most importantly, of course, favorite podcasts of the year, obviously other than Lost Debate. What have you been listening to? Other than Lost Debate, I'd say Barry Weiss's podcast, honestly, is really fabulous and will hit any third rail that you can possibly think of and have really diverse voices at the table. So if you like our kind of debate style. I think that she facilitates that often and very well. I like this podcast called 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. And I it, it's good for people like you who didn't live through the 90s. But if you did live through the 90s, it honestly is the best deep dive in 90s culture I've ever found out there. And the, and the host, Rob Harvilla, is just one of the funniest podcasters out there in the business. So I highly recommend it. Hey, this is Ricky. You've reached the last debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the tone. And we've really enjoyed hearing you guys and your feedback and what you have to say. Um, we have a voicemail line. It's 321-200-0570. And in our last episode, we talked about the issue of assisted suicide, which is a really difficult topic. And we just want to highlight a few interesting responses that we got from listeners. I really think it's something that should be more happening in the United States that there are a lot of people that are sitting in nursing homes and um, their life savings are being sucked up by these nursing homes and there are people with a variety of dementias that that have no idea where they are, what they're doing. You know, I think there's a, a loss of dignity in life that some of these people might like to have the option of assisted death. I just don't understand why it's always referred to as a slippery slope to legalize any form of it because it seems like if it's just done carefully, you know, with certain restrictions on it and a process, it wouldn't necessarily have to be a slippery slope. I just think it's a really important option for people to have. I'm just turned 70, so such matters are uh, of concern to me, and I would like to say that I believe it's cruel not to have an option for assisted suicide or euthanasia. I do believe it should be, there should be uh, very concrete steps that one goes through to request it and to be certified as of sound mind if one reaches such a decision. But I really want that as an option. I think the slippery slope argument is a really interesting one. Like, obviously, 
I, I hear our listener on that, but obviously she's kind of on my side. So I, I probably would, you know, I probably would appreciate this point she's making, but I guess she's saying is like, Hey, like get to the, the bottom of the slope when we get to the bottom of the slope, but let's evaluate each step as its own step. I find an interesting argument, but Ricky, that's, that's cause she's agreeing with me, I think. Yeah, I would say just looking at Canada, I'm super concerned. There are models of states that have not gone down the slippery slope, but I think looking at Canada as a cautionary tale in this recent report that came out um, that CBC News published about how medically assisted deaths could save millions in healthcare spending, I think there could be some really perverse incentives for people to make decisions um, along economic lines that are really tragic and upsetting. And so I would just say, let's at the very least look at Canada as something that we don't want to replicate. All right. Well, on that light note, I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. It's been a pleasure to podcast with you all year. Listen to our special episodes the next few weeks. And I'm looking forward to being back with you in the new year with the same old Lost Debate spirit. Thank you. Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks, research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra, studio support and video editing by Moyo Adeolu, Editing and sound design by Joe Engelbrecht and Monica Espedia. <laughs>